welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. If last year's Beethoven anniversary gave us an opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with a very well-known composer, then the centenary this year of the birth of British composer Sir Malcolm Arnold gives a chance for many of us to newly acquaint ourselves with a composer who is, understandably, given his Oscar win in 1958 for his score to David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai, perhaps still best known as a film composer, but who also composed nine symphonies, 17 concertos, and numerous other works for orchestra, wind and brass band, in a compositional career that spanned over 40 years. To help us do this, I've asked author, broadcaster, and more importantly, president of the Malcolm Arnold Society, Piers Burton Page, to pick nine compositions that span the length and breadth of Arnold's compositional career ranging from outgoing works written while Arnold served in the Second World War to more introspective late works for string quartet and solo cello. Welcome to the show, Piers Burton-Page. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm looking forward to it very much. Um, It's very appropriate that we should be doing it in the year uh, of Malcolm's centenary. October the 21st, 2021 is going to be a very big day. Piers, before we begin our journey through Arnold's life and music, can you tell us about your introduction to Arnold's music and the man himself? I certainly can. I've, I've never forgotten it. Um, in my green days as a BBC music producer, I was a member of the gramophone department, which was where the ongoing series called This Week's Composer came from. Um, and one day, we'd, I think we'd just done Benjamin Britten as Composer of the Week. And we had one of our regular departmental meetings. Um, and the boss at the time looked around the table and said, well, that seemed to be a success doing Benjamin Britten. Why don't we do another one? Another living composer, that's to say. And who shall we do, she said. And various names were canvassed. Harrison Whistle, ooh, much too tough for nine o'clock in the morning, which was when the programme was broadcast. Michael Tippett, same applied. Irving Berlin, well, that's a bit too much like marshmallow music. Why don't we do Malcolm Arnold? Somebody said, and it wasn't me who said that. Uh, And the boss said, that's a very good idea. What an excellent idea. Who's going to do it? And when somebody in a departmental meeting asks for volunteers, everybody puts their head down and thinks, oh, my God, me, please not me. And I was I was one of those who put their head down. But the fickle finger of fate (laughs) with which we're all familiar soon pointed at me and um, I, I got the job. And it all started from there. I, I didn't know anything about Malcolm Arnold's music. Um, I must have heard a note or two, I suppose, but I did what any self-respecting producer would do. I got all the records out I could find from the admirable BBC Gramophone Library. Um, and I discovered a real composer, a composer with whom I think I can honestly say I fell in love at that particular moment. And um, that was all those years ago. And uh, here we are now. And uh, for my sins, as you say, I was very flattered last year to be asked to be president of the Malcolm Arnold Society, which you should all join at the end of this podcast. <laughs> and I do believe you did meet Malcolm Arnold himself. Uh, I did indeed. Um, uh, I have another memory, which is of going to the BBC reference library and um, asking uh, for all that they could find uh, about this composer. Um, and particularly, I wanted a biography, of course. And I remember the assistant saying, oh, I'm very sorry, Piers, but I mean, there's no such thing as a biography of Malcolm Arnold. At which point a little seed was sown, which came to fruition many years later. And I did indeed write the first biography of Malcolm, um, sort of authorised, sort of with his cooperation. But um, we'll come to this in a minute. He was not in a very good state uh, at the time. So I did have lots of conversations with him. 
not always happy ones. There was one occasion when he opened the door to me himself and said, oh, no, it's that bastard from the BBC again. <laughs> um, well, we, we recovered from that. Um, since I wrote my own biography of Malcolm Arnold, which must be oh, probably 20 years or so now, there's been a much more recent, much more updated and much more accurate one, which I thoroughly recommend. And it's by Tony Meredith and Paul Harris. Well, born in 1921, Malcolm Arnold's young life was, of course, greatly influenced by the Second World War. While Arnold was very reluctant to serve, he did eventually enlist after the death of his brother. Can you introduce his Sea Shanties, written in 1943 and premiered at Filey Aerodrome? Uh, I certainly can. They are the product of uh, his time in the London Philharmonic Orchestra. You've, you've, your introduction to that wonderful piece, The Sea Shanties, glosses over the whole question of his war service and his discharge and the fact that as a young student at the Royal College of Music, he was a brilliant trumpeter and indeed joined the London Philharmonic um, before he'd actually graduated. And then, of course, the war decimated the membership of the London Philharmonic, and he soon found himself first trumpet. Uh, During the war, the uh, London Philharmonic toured widely in this country, supporting um, people in their their time of hardship, uh, and often broke it broke down into smaller chamber groups. They had a very energetic and enthusiastic chairperson who um, encouraged that. Um, And that's how Malcolm wrote this little piece, uh, written for the London Philharmonic Wind Ensemble. And it's one of his very earliest pieces, 1943, premiered not not at Filey Aerodrome, but Filton Aerodrome, Filton Aerodrome um, outside Bristol. Um, We don't quite know exactly the precise date or the precise circumstances, Uh, but in these three shanties, well, he uh, he does what it says on the tin. He treats three sea shanties in witty, charming, diverting, tuneful manner, and this is the first of them. So that was the first of Malcolm Arnold's Sea Shanties, performed by the Nash Ensemble on Hyperion. Yeah, these early works must have been a great training because they were written for all sorts of various combinations of instruments. And later in his career, he was incredibly flexible and able to write for a massively diverse number of instruments, perhaps because of this training. Uh, I think the fact of having played inside an orchestra uh, and getting to know how an orchestra works from the inside is the crucial point, uh, Paul. I mean, it's it's certainly true that in these early years he was writing a lot of chamber style, chamber shaped pieces for the forces that were available to him. But a big breakthrough does come when he does get the chance to write an orchestral piece. Um, I think actually the piece we're going to hear, which is the overture Beckus the Dandy Pratt, 
I'll explain the name in a minute. I think that was more or less begun sort of on spec in the hope that um, it, it might one day be performed. I think it was written without a performance in mind. It derives its name, Beckus, the dandy prat, from a seaside holiday, actually, when he was uh, on a beach in Cornwall and a young urchin um, came and pestered him for a piggyback ride. And, uh, and um, this young boy, ruffian, if you like, got on Malcolm's back and started pummeling him and saying, oh, come on, Beckus, you're all my old grey mare. And uh, <laughs> uh, Malcolm pinched, pinched the name Beckus. And a dandy prat is another old English word for an urchin. And so the overture Beckus the dandy prat was born. Um, and it's a wonderful piece, I think. It's the same year as the sea shanties, actually, though I'm not sure you'd know that. And it's tuneful, it's lively, uh, and it's uh, brilliantly orchestrated. And this is how it starts. So that's the opening of Beckus the Dandy Pratt, uh, performed by the BBC Philharmonic and Rumon Gamba on Chandos. Could Beckus the Dandy Pratt be seen as a musical self-portrait of the young Malcolm Arnold? Hmm, good question, Paul. Um, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I've described how the piece was born and this young urchin who's portrayed in it. Um, but I suppose it is also a sort of kind of self-portrait too. There's, it's rumbustious and noisy, and Malcolm was certainly both of those things when he was in his prime. It's going to lead us on eventually to bigger and, I think, better orchestral pieces as well, which are certainly self-portraits. We'll come before very long to the question of his symphonies. I think the orchestra was his natural home, really, for all sorts of reasons, and not least the fact that he could feel free to express himself at his most um, wide-ranging and elaborate and generous. Yeah, there's a sort of wonderful manic energy to this. In a way, it sort of reminds me of Spike Milligan, another creative talent influenced by his military service, who also struggled with mental health throughout his life. And Malcolm Arnold is a rare example of a composer who, whose music is genuinely funny. What other pieces will raise a chuckle? Well, your mention of Spike Milligan is, is, is very appropriate. It immediately, it immediately raises the spectre of one of Malcolm's greatest friends, who is uh, that great um, musical comic, if that's not too much of a shorthand expression, uh, Gerard Hoffnung. Malcolm Arnold and Gerard Hoffnung uh, were well acquainted with one another, got on like a house on a fire. They think they were kindred spirits in, in, in many ways. And for those extraordinary musical jamborees that Gerard Hoffnung used to put on in the Royal Festival Hall, the Interplanetary Music Festival and the Astronautical Music Festival. Uh, Malcolm wrote a number of pieces for them, including the, the well-known Grand, Grand Overture, so grand that it features floor polishers and vacuum cleaners and rifle shots. And dedicated to Herbert Hoover. 
and Herbert Huey. Yeah. Well, yes, um, uh, and, and there are various other ones as well. There's uh, the United Nations, which features marching bands up and down playing different national anthems. Uh, and my favourite, I think, is the Concerto for Eater, Waiter, Food and Orchestra. Well, Hobson's Choice was a breakthrough for Malcolm Arnold, being one of his first film score commissions. Let's have a quick brace of the overture performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and Richard Hickox on Chandos. Arnold is still perhaps best known for his score to A Bridge on the River Kwai. Did taking film score commissions as a young composer, as well as his resolutely tonal style, damage his credibility amongst music critics and cause him to be pigeonholed as a film composer? Well, he was a film composer, so uh, to that extent, pigeonholing doesn't come into the equation, I don't think, Paul. I think, I mean, it, it started way back, actually, in the 19, late 1940s, 1947, was his first, when he was badgered by a colleague in the London Philharmonic to submit a score to the Denham Film Studios. His initial work in films was with documentaries, so there were, uh, uh, was a great appetite for film scores for all kinds of things, like report on steel and uh, opening of bridges, and that and that kind of thing and the oil industry um, and uh, Malcolm made a reasonable living uh, as a young composer out of that film scores uh, documentary film scores and then very soon became uh, the man to go to for do- for feature films as well his first feature film was 1948 just a year after Avalanche Patrol was the first documentary Badger's Green a pretty unknown film now from 1948 was his first uh, feature film and then of course we're talking about the, the great things like the David Lean trilogy uh, Sound Barrier Hobson's Choice uh, and then Bridge on the River Kwai which you mentioned in your introduction but so question, question your question was does it cause him to be pigeonholed well uh, he wrote so many um, that it, w- it was almost inevitable that he should be kind of labelled as a film composer. Um, I think it possibly did prejudice uh, critical opinion at it at some time, to the to the point that round about the late nineteen sixties, he more or less decided to, to quit uh, film writing. I think there were plenty of other factors as well. I mean, he'd exhausted himself, and he was trying to lead a double life as a film composer and as a quotes serious composer at the same time and eventually the two sides of his his life couldn't coexist any longer yeah, it does of course pay the bills very well film composition but as you said it's very very tiring because you're writing music to a very tight deadline it pays the bills but he's he spent all the proceeds at the same time i think <laughs> 
While although highly prodigious in a wide variety of musical forms, opera and vocal music isn't something we tend to associate with Malcolm Arnold. But could you introduce The Dancing Master, a one-act opera which was shelved at the time for being too bawdy? I think he might have had a future as an opera composer if he hadn't been writing films, actually. I think, in a way, I think films kind of took over the natural dramatic instincts that Malcolm certainly had. He was a, a wide a widely read uh, composer, a very wide knowledge of literature and books. And he did make early attempts at writing opera. There's uh, an early piece which was de- destined for the Festival of Britain, which he wrote the opening scene for, and then it wasn't commissioned. And so that didn't happen. Uh, the uh, Dancing Master was a, an extraordinary story, really. He, he, he'd already worked on a documentary film with this uh, writer called Joe Mendoza. And out of the blue, Joe Mendoza sent him uh, an adaptation of a a restoration comedy called The Dancing Master, suggesting that this might be turned into an opera with a bit of work on it. What happens? Well, a fortnight later, Joe Mendoza gets back a full score of the whole thing set from beginning to end. Um, So it was written at vast speed. It clearly struck a chord with, with the young Malcolm in 1951, I think we're talking about. And then it sort of lapsed. It was... Uh, it's, it's it's not exactly risque. It's it's got sort of various stock stock characters in it, like young maids and uh, sort of randy Spaniards and things like that. <laughs> but um, they did send it off to the BBC to see whether that would be accepted, and that's the grounds that it was dismissed as being too, a bit too bawdy. Um, and then it sort of fell into oblivion, and it's only just recently been revived a couple of times uh, never really had a proper properly professional performance uh, until very recently and it turns out to be something of a, of a little gem it's a slightly awkward length it's about an hour and 10 minutes which so it makes it sort of well it could be one half of a double bill i suppose if you can find the right partner for it no chorus um, and a very large orchestra which probably don't lend itself to uh, productions very easily but it it turns out from this most recent recording of it, from this new recording of it on Resonus Classics, um, to be uh, an absolutely lost masterpiece. And I thought what, just to prove the point, I thought we might just hear part of the finale. conclusion of The Dancing Master, performed by the BBC Concert Orchestra, John Andrews on Resonus. Yeah, so given its subject matter and Arnold's love of dance tunes, this is a perfect libretto for him that really enables him to revel in his melodic gifts, doesn't it? Yes, there are kind of little arias kind of tucked away inside it, but I think a lot of the interest is in the orchestra, actually. He was by now such a master of the orchestra, and, and that's why his films and that's why his symphonies and orchestral works are so successful. 
I was delighted to see that hopefully the Dancing Master will finally be staged at this year's Buxton Festival. Hopefully this marks a revival of interest in this composer. How did Malcolm Arnold's own fame wax and wane throughout his career? Ah, I think you need to know that the life itself, I've come to the conclusion, was a tragic one. Malcolm had enormous health issues all through his life, psychotic illnesses, suicidal tendencies, two wives, and overshadowed by, well, I'm not sure whether it's schizophrenia or, or bipolar or whatever. So he went in and out of uh, depression and treatment and hospitalisation and seems to have been able to kind of write music despite all this. But of course, there are plenty of occasions when this tragedy, this this hopelessness, this despair does sometimes break through the mask, if you see what I mean. So there is a sort of yo-yo between um, uh, light and dark, um, optimism and pessimism. Um, and I think there are many pieces in which this does, does come, come through very forcefully. Well, Malcolm Arnold was a prodigious composer of concertos, writing for a wide variety of unusual instruments, recorders, clarinets and harmonicas, and many famous instrumentalists like Michaela Petri, Julian Lord Webber, and even Larry Adler. What stands out about the guitar concerto, written for the great Julian Bream, but performed on this recording by Eduardo Fernandez, the English Chamber Orchestra, and Barry Wordsworth? Well, in that little extract from the start of the second movement, um, I think you can hear Malcolm Arnold paying tribute to one of his great heroes, the French guitarist Django Reinhardt. A lovely kind of bluesy movement. And Julian Bream, of course, loved that concerto and uh, recorded it a couple of times um, and took it very much to his heart. They collaborated together, uh, Julian and Malcolm, um, not just on this concerto, but on one or two other little pieces as well. Lovely solo fantasy for guitar later on in um, Malcolm's life. I think in, in Malcolm's concertos, I think he's A, celebrating his many friends. Uh, you mentioned some of them. I think he's also able to forget in writing his concertos himself the concertos are portraits, musical portraits of his soloist rather than of himself. And so some of the darkness and some of the heaviness and some of the gloom that can occasionally descend is banished by and large. And he loved writing for kind of odd, odd things like harmonicas. And, and, and as you say, the, the wonderful thing about the harmonica concerto is that it's scored for brass underneath. So, so there's this little frail sound is pitted against 
well, not exactly pitted against, they counterpoint each other very beautifully. Uh, but he's pitted against the most unlikely combination of forces. Yes, agreed. I think one of the most notable aspects of the guitar concerto and the uh, harmonic concerto is the careful balancing between the soloist and wind and brass. And this is always difficult for a guitar concerto. How valuable was Arnold's early career as a trumpeter in actually achieving this? Well, as I think I hinted right at the start, I think uh, hearing music from inside the orchestra was was a tremendous boon. Um, and I think that's what lent him uh, to the orchestra as his prime uh, source of output, really. He knew every instrument. He could play other instruments as well. He was um, something of a pianist. He studied piano as a second subject, at, as a second study at the Royal College of Music. I don't know what other instruments he played, but he he could certainly feel his way around almost everything un, under the sun. I think, uh, except for the cor anglais, he had apparently a, he had a prejudice he had a prejudice against the cor anglais. He said, "I've never used a cor anglais in my life." <laughs> he must have he must have fallen out with the cor anglais player in the London Philharmonic Orchestra as as a young man, perhaps. His, history does not reveal whether this is true or not. <laughs> Well, Malcolm Arnold joins illustrious forebears in completing nine symphonies. For me, the darkly intense third is a highlight of the cycle, but why have you picked the fifth? I could have picked any any one of the nine altogether, Paul, without um, not without feeling some pangs of having abandoned the other eight. Um, they are, each of them, uh, unique in themselves. Uh, they range from the kind of noisy, youthful, vigorous, Marlerian first symphony written on spec in the 1940s to the really sombre ninth symphony which has echoes of Mahler and Tchaikovsky in its uh, shape and structure. Number two is gloriously lyrical, number eight has a sort of Irish march tune or something like that that runs all the way through it, Uh, but number five I think is the one that I would not die for but I go a long way for anyway. I think it's the most comprehensive of all of them. It's a a strange piece in a way. He said it was written to commemorate four friends, uh, including the great horn player Dennis Brain. Um, And you can certainly hear that. Um, But there are much wider and deeper echoes all the way through it. And I think it's the one where the influence of Gustav Mahler uh, is perhaps the most prominent. And nowhere more so than in the start of the second movement, uh, a wonderful, slow, big tune. Uh, But what I think is extraordinary in the version we're going to hear, which is conducted by Malcolm himself, in his hands with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, it's more than just a big tune. It's more than just a gorgeous wallow. You can hear a pin drop as you listen to it, I think. Thank you. 
So that was the slow move to Malcolm Arnold's Fifth Symphony, performed by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Malcolm Arnold on Warner Classics. As you've said, these symphonies are remarkable in their stylistic variety. Arnold was capable of absorbing a dazzling array of influences, wasn't he? He wrote not just for orchestra, but he wrote for youth orchestras, brass bands, small groups, choirs. As you said earlier, not a great deal of vocal music, but he did have a special soft spot, I think, for brass bands, particularly after his move to Cornwall. Malcolm was something of an itinerant composer. I mean, he spent most of his uh, formative years in, in London. But for a combination of reasons to, to do with personal life and trouble with the accountants, uh, <laughs> he moved, first of all, to Cornwall and then to the Republic of Ireland. And the Cornwall uh, episode, which lasted uh, six or seven years or, or so, gave him a chance to identify with the local community in a way that had not been possible in London, I think. Um, And I think he always was in search of roots. And in Cornwall, and and to some extent in Ireland also, he was able to to put down roots and to enjoy himself blending into the local community. And this came out in Cornwall in in pieces of music that he wrote down there for Cornish dances, wonderful use of of, uh, wonderful evocation of the Cornish landscape. And of course, Cornwall is uh, famous for its uh, silver bands. And so there are there are pieces that were written for the Cornwall Youth Band. Uh, But the piece that I've alighted on to kind of illustrate this is slightly different. It is a brass band piece. It's called the Padstow Lifeboat. And the story behind this piece, and it's a little march, not much more than four or five minutes, is that Malcolm lived in Cornwall near Travose Head, which has a lighthouse uh, with a foghorn and a lifeboat at Padstow. And he could hear the foghorn from his the door of his cottage. So he incorporates this, this foghorn into the march, but it, it creates a slight discord or dissonance because it's a, a somewhere between C and D, he says, but, um, and the march hovers around A flat. So you've got, <laughs> so you've got, you've got this, this, this musical tension as well, which makes it, makes it all the more vigorous and all the more powerful, I think. And in the middle, there's a sort of storm as well, but we'll hear the opening. Padstow Lifeboat, there performed by the Dallas Wind Symphony, conducted by Jerry Junkin. As you've mentioned there, rather than becoming a hermit with his move to Cornwall, he very much got involved with the local community there, didn't he? Seldom far away from the local local hostelry, I think. <laughs> uh, um, yes, I think there, there are stories of, of him... Um, being extremely generous and doling out, um, having open house at the local pub, I think. And I think he really felt at home in Cornwall. And, and I think it was with some sense of sadness that he moved eventually to Ireland, when I think he was very much at a low ebb and there'd been suicide attempts uh, and a divorce. And, and um, this is goes back to the 
the tra- I think tragedy is not too strong a word for, for his life, really. Composers' late styles are often much discussed and remarked upon, and Arnold's second string quartet, written in 1975, reveals a more austere side to this composer, perhaps not seen before. Is this Arnold confronting his demons? Um, I think there are many of the works that were written in Ireland, and this second string quartet was indeed written in Ireland, uh, are pieces where he does confront uh, some of the, uh, the, the anger and distress within him. The Seventh Symphony being the, the, the most notable example, but there are other pieces as well. He wrote a fantasy on uh, themes of, of the Irish composer John Field, for instance, which is a very, very angry and disturbed piece. The second quartet is uh, less disturbed than some, though it is very angular and and indeed um, dissonant uh, in places. But it also has uh, elements of the other Malcolm Arnold inside. It has it has a wonderful tune in the slow movement, for instance, and a sort of Hollywood style resolution. And this is so. I, the second quartet is one of my all time favourite Malcolm Arnold pieces. Um, sadly, only been recorded a couple of times, and I wish quartets played it much more in 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 public on on the public concert platform as well. Um, but it's a piece that is, that is really got the essence of Malcolm inside it, I think. And here's a sample performed by the Magini Quartet on Naxos. Yes, I very much agree with you there, uh, Piers. It is a distillation almost of Malcolm Arnold's entire compositional career. It has the dance uh, tunes in it and the more uh, austere side. Austere is a good word, I think. As uh, Malcolm grew into old age, I wouldn't say he becomes austere, but the style becomes more pared down without losing any of the kind of tunefulness and tenseness of some of the earlier music. Uh, I, I think there is a sort of late style that's, something to do with with his distressed state of mind. Um, He did eventually leave Ireland uh, and come back to England and and was hospitalised for for years, really. There's a sort of gap in his life before eventually he was taken on by a a much younger carer who looked after him and sort of nurtured him back to health or sort of health, nurtured him back uh, into uh, composition even as well. This is Anthony Day, to whom the Ninth Symphony is dedicated. uh, And we owe um, Anthony Day uh, a great deal for, a a great tribute really, for, for giving Malcolm a sort of second, even third chance, I think. There is more terse string writing in Piers' final selection, his Fantasy for Solo Cello, written for Julianoid Webber. Malcolm Arnold embraced the famous forms of classical music, the symphony, the concerto, etc. But at the end of his career, he really revels in the compositional freedom offered by a solo fantasy, doesn't he? 
Uh, it wasn't uh, the first fantasy he'd written by any manner of means. There are a number of fantasies for solo instruments from uh, from earlier in the career, for wind instruments and for harp and guitar, for instance. I think he enjoyed the freedom of the formal freedom that the that the fantasy gave, and it's interesting that he came back to it um, right towards the end of his life. Um, this solo fantasy was written for Julian Lloyd Webber, who has always been a great uh, advocate of, of Malcolm's music and, and still is, as far as I know. There's a cello concerto which uh, Malcolm wrote for him. The, the cello fantasy is is um, unexpected in some ways. It's it's it is indeed austere. It is thin textured and linear but at the same time it's it's very it's very rich there are moments of very great somberness but there is also um, moments where he seems Malcolm seems to be able to discard any shadows and you get a little march you get and you get this lovely movement that I've chosen which is a sort of it's just a gentle pizzicato movement from beginning to end but it says a very great deal in a short, short space of time Arnold's Fantasy for Solo Cello, performed by Julian Lloyd Webber on cello on ASV. Well, finally, as something of a newcomer to the music of Malcolm Arnold, I was just amazed at the breadth and variety in his composition. Has this variety actually hindered his posthumous reputation because he can't be pigeonholed, except, of course, as a film composer? I think his reputation is is changing. Um, he died in uh, 2006, um, and there's been... Uh, so we're f- 15 years ago now. Good heavens, 15 years ago. Um, it seems like yesterday that I remember opening the newspaper and reading of his of his death. I, I, and I think his reputation is going to continue to change. I think um, the films have a life of their own on TV channels buried away on, on, on the obscure corners of the box. Um, what I think uh, is slowly starting to happen now is the rediscovery of the orchestral music and the chamber music, which is so rich and varied as you say Paul and I think that's going to continue to happen uh, I can tell you for instance that something I'm very much looking forward to is is a planned CD release by the Malcolm Arnold or sponsored by the Malcolm Arnold Society I should say uh, for the centenary coming out in September on Somme is a disc with Margaret Fingerhut playing the piano and uh, Peter Fisher playing the violin of all Malcolm's music for violin and piano which is a, a very obscure little corner of his work but there are little pieces buried away in there, pieces written for Yehudi Menuhin, no less, which I'm sure are going to be well worth discovering when that disc finally sees the light of day. So there's lots more to discover, but there's plenty to celebrate in the meanwhile. 
Yes, he's, he's a composer who doesn't sort of fall into any sort of the dogmatic uh, arguments about 20th century music. He was quite happy writing tonal music, but that's, that's challenging tonal music. But he wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't obsessed with some of the more extreme movements in uh, post-war music. Uh, he certainly wasn't obsessed with them, no. And uh, I, I think he was against... I wouldn't say he was anti-intellectual, but I think he very much felt that, that music had to come from the heart and go to the heart. Those are Beethoven's words, of yeah. course, to do with the Mr. Solemnis. But I think, um, I think they're very true for Malcolm as well, from the heart and to the heart. Um, he, was, he was a generous man and a generous musician, and I think that shows uh, in every note that he wrote. And despite all his difficulties, he did achieve a great amount in his career. Yes, and uh, thank God for that. Well, thank you very much, Piers, for opening our ears to a composer whose breadth of compositions, both in form and style, were a delight for me to discover while making this programme, and I hope was a delight for our listeners to discover as well. Uh, Thank you very much for your expertise, Piers. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks to my producer, Matt Groom, and thanks to you for listening. (laughs) 